Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. You set out uh, to sort of discover where plastic is in our lives. It's a pretty substantial presence. Yeah, it's a really substantial presence. Um, I start the book talking about this little experiment I did where I thought, um, you know, I'll go a day without touching anything plastic. And it seemed pretty simple, pretty easy. Um, and I didn't think it through very hard until that morning when I walked into the bathroom and looked down at the plastic toilet seat. And I was, eh, yeah. <laughs> quick change of plans. And I said I'd spend the day writing down everything I touched that was plastic. And by day's end, I had a list of almost 200 things, just everything from, you know, the tiny little stickers on my organic fruit to the, uh, entire interior of my car. Um, and I was kind of staggered at how much. And, and what about natural substances, the wood, the wool, the paper? Well, the, I decided the next day I'd write down, you know, everything I touched that wasn't plastic. And it was about a list about half the size. So I figured I had a plastic, non-plastic ratio of about two to one, um, which was a surprise to me. Just for a moment of clarification, uh, Donovan, are rubber duckies actually rubber? Uh, they used to be, uh, but the ones of recent manufacture are mostly, uh, the ones that, are, that feel like rubber ducks are actually usually PVC with softeners added. The ones that I went chasing for on the uh, high seas were actually rigid polyethylene. Uh, they were hollow plastic ducks. All right, now Susan, when you hear these terms and you imagine them being in the hands of young children or grown-ups who like them in their bathtubs, what? <laughs> What, what do you begin? For other reasons, what do you begin to think? I, you know, again, I mean, it's 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 everywhere, and it's kind of this, you know, multisyllabic polyglot alphabet soup of synthetic chemicals that we live and are, you know, surrounded by at every turn. It's such. It can be such a marvelous product. There is so much of it. It's and in the very nature of what plastic means, it's shapeable, it's formable, it's moldable. You can make almost anything out of it. It has strength. It's an amazing substance. I mean, I think about what it must have been like, uh, you know, in the mid-19th century when people first started um, looking for alternatives and substitutes for the natural world. And what an amazing thing it must have been to develop these materials that you could make whatever you wanted out of. And we've gotten really, really good at it, you know. You know, that the plant, uh, the anthurium, the one with the sort of the red, the very hard red leaf, or, or petal and with kind of a f very phallic yellow, uh, you know, that, that sometimes gets handed out as a bouquet. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you take a look at that plant, it looks plastic. But you realize that that plant has been around before plastic, and it must have seemed a very strange substance, a very exotic substance, the kind of texture. It didn't feel plant-like at all. It looks and feels plastic, and it's got that shiny kind of look to it. And then we develop plastic. Where, what is the origin of plastic? You mean historically or literally? Both. I mean, uh, is, is historically not literally? I don't know. Uh, well, anyway. Historically, it, it came about in the mid-19th century, where, you know, the Victorians um, discovered um, rubber, you know, came, brought it from, back from the Amazon, and were completely amazed by it. And that kind of set off this search for developing substances that could do what rubber could do, that could be malleable, but that you could actually mold into hardened form. The plastics that we know and, and are familiar with 
date from the early part of the 20th century. And those mostly come from byproducts from petroleum, um, oil and natural gas processing, um, which generate huge amounts of, of essentially what would be waste, but the petrochemical industry's gotten really good at taking that waste and making it into new products like plastic. Was, was there ever an element of accident, uh, like Goodyear, Goodyear accidentally you know, heating rubber and discovering it got strength then therefrom? And was, a, was there a plastic discovered by accident? It's really funny. I mean, you read the early plastic discoveries, and it's all like these klutzes in the lab knocking things over and going, whoa, whoa, what's that? You know, so, so like polyethylene, these guys were noodling around in the lab, and they, um, they were mixing various things together. And, you know, basically, <laughs> um, a couple of things actually exploded the vessels. But then they finally found this stuff that was like this waxy white substance at the bottom of, of the container vessel. And they didn't know what to do with it. And for a long time, they just thought it was this really weird thing. And then discovered that it, among other things, that polyethylene, which is like the stuff of baggies, among other things that it can do is it's really good at insulating um, electricity. And uh, they figured out that they could use it in radar. And it allowed the British, actually, to build radar devices to put on planes. Um, it was really critical in helping the Allies win World War II. But a lot of it, you know, in the early days, not so much anymore, but a lot of it came out of these kind of serendipitous discoveries and accidents. Is there, what's the story of the, uh, the IV bag? Uh, the one that, that, that holds, uh, you know, various drips and medicines and all the plastic tubing that, you know, gives people, you know, life-generating liquids in the hospital. Yeah, I, I, I write about the IV bag or the blood bag originally, um, which is exactly that. It's kind of this the classic sort of double-edged sword of plastic, the ways in which it's great and the ways in which it's problematic. And um, up until the 1950s, um, blood, uh, blood banking was still pretty new, but blood was collected in glass bottles through uh, rubber tubes, um, steel syringes, and um, this surgeon in the 50s thought, you know, there's got to be a better way to do this. And he got the idea of taking vinyl, um, which was a fairly new plastic, and which in one variety came as a sort of soft, rubbery uh, material made, made flexible by the addition of chemicals. And he thought, let's take this vinyl and use it uh, to hold blood. And, you know, he, in fact, it was such a great advance, he brought it to this meeting. He brought a blood bag filled with blood, put it on the floor, and stamped on it, you know, to show his colleagues, this is great stuff, it won't break. And it allowed them to um, collect and store blood more safely. It allowed, uh, made it easier to separate blood into its components. Great, great stuff until, you know, you flash forward 20 years and you start discovering that these vinyl blood bags actually leach the chemical that makes the vinyl flexible, this, these chemicals called phthalates. Um, and again, no one was sure that that was a problem, but they had assumed these were pretty inert materials. And then, you know, Fast forward another 20 years, and we're discovering that actually there may be problems with these chemicals that leach out because um, they seem to be uh, capable of interrupting and disrupting um, hormones, particularly testosterone. So it's kind of, and I, I in the book I describe going to a neonatal intensive care unit um, where uh, I saw this baby sitting in a plastic incubator, and um, she was tiny. She was like, you know, a, the maybe a pound, um, and I could have put her in the palm of my hand, and she had tubes, uh, vinyl tubing and bags hooked up to her nose, to her veins, to her belly button, into her forehead, and, you know, these chemicals were, uh, these, these vinyl 
devices were delivering um, uh, medicines and nutrients that were absolutely essential to her health, totally life-saving for her, but also because of uh, vinyl's capacity to leach chemicals, delivering chemicals that could potentially affect her life years from now, decades from now. And, you know, talk about sort of being balanced on this double-edged sword. Um, it was right there. What about the, uh, the credit card, the ubiquitous uh, use of the word plastic, you know, use plastic? Yeah, you know, it's not just credit cards. There's actually plastic money. I just read um, Canada is converting from paper to plastic money, literally plastic money. Um, but yeah, I write about the credit cards. We use about 75 million a year. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it changed um, the way that we spend. And I, in the book, I use it kind of as a metaphor for consumption and the kind of easy, fast, often mindless consumption that I think our whole plastic age is enabled. I mean, credit cards actually are made out of PVC, the same stuff that vinyl's made out of. But in that case, it's a hard thing. They don't have, I don't think they have phthalates in them. PVC, however, is not a great plastic. It's kind of the plastic um, that, you know, I think is the most problematic because it uh, is made with chlorine, and that means that um, to make it, it... Uh, the, one of the original ingredients to make it is a really toxic chemical called vinyl chloride. Um, uh, it, if you incinerate or burn PVC, it releases dioxins, incredibly carcinogenic compounds. And, um, and credit cards, you know, we don't have a good way of disposing of credit cards, so they get landfilled. And those You're supposed to cut them up into little pieces. But those little pieces still add up. <laughs> You know, for these shards of plastic that last for eons, right? That's right. That's right. They will last. They will last for eons and eons. Um, and I, I actually talk in the book about Discover having made this biodegradable plastic credit card, which, you know, turns out isn't really so biodegradable. You know, it, but wouldn't it be nice to tie that in with the expiration date? You know, you, you pick it up and come April of 2014. You know, uh, it crumbles, <laughs> explodes on yes. impact. Yes. <laughs> on the expiration date. Yeah, I mean, credit cards, I don't know exactly what the answer is with credit cards because they're one of those little tiny things in our plastic world that add up to be a lot. Um, the, the calculation was that if you took all the credit cards in use and stacked them, they'd reach more than 70 miles into space. Um, that's, well, that's not so. I thought you were going to say like to the moon or something. So only 70 miles? 13 Mount Everests. 13. Oh, no, that's big. <laughs> It all adds up. I mean, that's the point about our plastic life, is it's a lot of little, little disposable things that all add up. And that's, a, you know, Donovan talked about in his book. You know, it, it all ends up, a lot of it ends up out in the ocean. The, the kind of, because plastic doesn't go away, it only fragments into smaller and smaller pieces. We are transforming the world with this accumulation of tiny little, you know, never-die fragments of plastic stuff. I talked once with a man who represented a, a sort of a toy manufacturers, and he finally went out of that business and went into antiques of some kind. Uh, but he, he the, one of the turning points was visiting a manufacturing plant in China that was turning out hundreds of thousands of orange pumpkins with black faces pointed on, uh, painted on them for Halloween so the kids in America could go around and collect candy in them. And the plant that made these, you know, it was using a paint that uh, was was putting out toxic fumes of some kind, and 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 the fields surrounding this plant for miles, square miles, had these pumpkins with the paint drying on them, and it just sort of gave a scale. You go into a you know a store and you buy a pop plastic pumpkin. You don't think that there are 
hundreds of thousands of these things being manufactured. What are the manufacturing consequences? What chemicals are being used in them? How is it affecting the people who are making them? Oh, oh, absolutely. I, I went to um, China um, and to w one of the chapters in my book, I track the production of a Frisbee. And so I went to, it turns out, Whammo, you know, classic, iconic American company, um, at that time was manufacturing its Frisbees in China. And after much, much negotiation with the company, I had to actually sign a secrecy agreement because Frisbees, they were concerned people would find out how to make Frisbees. <laughs> you know, you can't reverse engineer one just by looking at it, I guess. Anyway, so I went to this factory. <laughs> So I went to this factory, and it was fascinating. I mean, it was it was filled with people, all migrant workers. Um, I, um, you know, people who were probably making, I, I would imagine, less than two hundred dollars a month um, to manufacture frisbees. And um, at the end, and as I'm walking through the plant, the um, uh, uh, the um, oh, daughter of the owner was showing me around, and she turned to me at one point and she said, "You know, are frisbees very popular in America?" And I said, "Oh." Yeah, everyone in America has frisbees. You know, it's a great toy. And I said, "Why do you ask?" And she goes, you, "We don't, we don't really play with them here. We don't know what they are." And then I asked one of the workers, you know, if she knew what a frisbee was, and she said, "Well, I, I know it's something you play with at the beach." And I said, "Have you ever played with one?" And she said, "No, I've never been to a beach." So you know, they're they're making and packing these frisbees that have no meaning or relevance to their lives. Strange. It must be uh, like. I mean, you truly are dealing with an alien culture, you know, and sending this off, uh, you know, that we're the alien culture to whatever this manufacturing process is. 28,800 bath toys, why that number that went off the ship, Donovan? Why that number? Um, there, were, uh, there was a factory in China um, that got an order for 7,200 sets of um, bath toys. They were called the Floaties brand. The ducks have become famous. Uh, but let's give credit to the uh, red beaver and the green frog and the blue turtle as well. Um, so they came in sets of four, and these, uh, there was a container ship traveling from Hong Kong for Tacoma uh, in January of 1992. Encountered rough seas and lost 12 containers overboard, including the one uh, containing these bath toys, which escaped from their packaging and went adrift on the North Pacific. Yeah. How did they escape? Was there a plan? I mean, somebody have the key? <laughs> Yeah, I love that. I, the, uh, uh, the, Quick, this is our time. I, when I, I don't want to go. I'm safe here. I was, I was thinking it's, it's a premise for a Pixar film. Right? Yeah. <laughs> they, the, uh, they, uh, no, I'm, I described it as, as they hatch from their plastic shelves because there was a cardboard back and a little uh, plastic bubble in which they were housed. The cardboard dissolves and out they go. So south of the Aleutians. Liberated. Liberated, exactly. All right, so then what became of this, uh, and what attracted you to this story? Uh, you, know, you describe yourself as a, a, a fool. Yeah, well, a, 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 little, a brief vignette. Early on when I was, my first expedition, where I was uh, trying to track down, figure out where they went, I was uh, in Sitka, Alaska, which is where they first made landfall in 1993, washing up by the hundreds, this kind of wondrous, mysterious invasion of bath toys. Um, and the story's famous there, it's been famous there forever, and I, doing a little ethnographic research, went down to a place called the Pioneer Bar, down by the wharves. <laughs> And, we know the Pioneer Bar. Oh yeah. And, uh, and uh, there was an old lady at the bar uh, in a motorcycle jacket smoking a cigarette. And somebody told her why I was there. And she said, I'll clear it up for radio, because she, 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 she was a salty woman, I think. Uh, she said, uh, uh, 
who the heck gives a rat's tuchus about that? So <laughs> it's a good, <laughs> and, then, and I was wearing a yellow slicker because that's what I thought seafarers wear, right? <laughs> Uh, the influence of Sesame Street, no doubt. But the, she, she reached over around my shoulders and snapped the yellow hood over my head and said, you look like a rubber duck. And then, and then told me to quack, which, which I did. Uh, so it's a good, All those Sitkins. You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, so it's a good question, one I've been having to answer since the very beginning. Um, the short answer is there's something to me uh, charming about the image. Um, uh, in news reports, this was always referred to as the rubber ducks lost at sea, even though as we now know, they're hollow plastic and, didn't, and included other species besides ducks. That image of these yellow iconic toys that are indigenous to the bathtub and man-made uh, and uh, have become icons of childhood out there um, on the sublime ocean or crossing um, as they were supposed to do, crossing the Arctic. That image was, was enchanting. Um, the other thing was, I, an oceanographer in Seattle uh, used this toy spill as a, as a kind of accidental experiment to study the currents. And early on, he sent me a map that showed where they'd been found by beachcombers and lighthouse keepers, but also where they would go. So I had a map, um, and the currents and the toys had drawn on it a kind of trail, and I couldn't resist uh, following it from beginning to end. When, uh, when we were doing a show in uh, Sitka in 1997, we were told about and shown shrines where these ducks and frogs had been placed. People found them on, uh, and, they, and they would just build these kind of like Buddhist shrines with these, uh, these creatures as the centerpiece. It's funny, I never saw a shrine. I saw people that had them in their homes. Or, uh, but it, in fact, that's the, the, the Tlingit uh, natives up there used to, used to do their, their petroglyphs of, of whales and other animals. There's something almost like it's the, the rubber ducky as animistic god now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What did the what did the uh, the oceanographer learn from the from the currents? Well, currents um, in the ocean have been described as rivers in the sea, um, and the metaphor is not entirely apt because they don't flow between banks. Um, they shift with the seasons. They change as the cl climate of the planet changes. So to the currents. Um, so uh, this is the old 19th century method of 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 learning to map the currents is to is to throw a message in a bottle overboard. Um, and so long as you know where, the, where the, the drift began, if you can find out where the spill occurred, and then find out where they ended up, you have, you've learned something um, um, about, about currents. Most oceanographers today use um, these really cool gizmos. They're like, um, like underwater droids. They can descend and surface at will, and they can communicate via satellite. So you'll learn more from that than you will from toys. But the toys are really cheap. Um, and um, really identifiable, and they last at sea for the reasons that Susan's already explained, because they're plastic, um, for a long time. So they, they make excellent drifters, um, at least so far as uh, studying the currents go. It used to be that you'd find Japanese glass fishing, uh, fishing net balls, the flotation balls, wash up on the beaches of California. No more. No more. They're gone. The, uh, I mean, I've I've heard that varying reports about how much those are still in use, and they are still a, a prized object. The, there is a kind of uh, a style of beachcombing uh, that I think originated largely with those balls, where where like bird watchers, people are very serious about it. They'll which beaches you have to go to and what you look for, and they'll draw grids in the sand and comb it and get their metal detectors out. So, yeah. So, are, do you, th in your theory, are there still ducks and frogs and so forth on the loose, still floating about? There's, there must be. In, in the summer of 2007, um, uh, I 
heard that they were being found in a wild uh, isthmus in Alaska, uh, um, a remote place. You can only get there by boat or, or float plane or helicopter. Um, but the, the stretch of shoreline stuck out into the currents and collected flotsam by the ton. Um, and I managed to get myself onto a very small boat uh, out into the Kenai wilderness. And it took a few days, but uh, uh, I did find one of the toys. It was a beaver, not a duck. Um, and one of the, some of the other people I was with found that they were turning up by the dozens. So we know that that's probably somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 have been accounted for. Um, some people, I'm sure, have them in their bathrooms and haven't reported the find. Um, <laughs> haven't returned them either. <laughs> uh, but there, there are almost certainly still thousands out there. Now, there, they could be in, in you know, there, there are 33,000 miles of, of coastline in Alaska alone, and, and then we've got Siberia. Um, so they're probably out buried under, under flotsam or trees or whatever. Uh, some of them will East, East capitalist threat, they come aboard here in <laughs> Russia. Here. It's fun to imagine, you know, being in some foreign country and this thing arriving from... Um, was, it, was there ever an insurance payment made on these? I uh, mean by the manufacturer? Or by the shipping company, I mean, to, to compensate for the loss of these? Yeah, I mean, most cargo is, 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 is insured, and, and it turns out that the 12 containers overboard to a shipping line isn't really that big a deal. They assume, they, they, can, they can handle a 12 container loss, they can write it off. Um, the, the, which is one reason we don't know a whole lot about these container spills, which are more regular and more common occurrence than you'd think. Um, uh, the worst spill in modern history happened in 1998, exact same route, far east to the Pacific Northwest, uh, out there in what used to be called the Graveyard of the Pacific. A ship called the APL China lost 407 containers on one night. Uh, 407 turns out to be a lot of containers, and um, that went to court, so we actually know a lot about that case. Uh, what sort of things was it, were in the, in the containers? Um, really everything you could have purchased in an American shopping mall. Um, they had uh, sh Schwinn bicycles, um, shirts from J. Crew and The Gap. They had seafood and reefers. They had um, uh, those little uh, air freshener cartridges, which I know about because I interviewed some of the stevedores that cleaned this mess up, and they were they, it smelled so bad of rotten uh, seafood, they were taking the air fresheners and rubbing them in their mustaches. So, um, so, so really, as one, as one of them said to me, it was, it, it was uh, a longshoreman said, there was Christmas lying on the deck. Right, so. Yeah, it fell off the back of the ship, I guess. It was, uh, all right, so, so there, we've been hearing uh, accounts of these plastic islands in the sea. So this is where some of these items end up? Well, they end up in the sea. They don't end up as plastic islands. That's the big misconception. Um, and in fact, what's there is probably much more disturbing and insidious. Because what happens is plastic doesn't biodegrade. It photodegrades. It breaks up into smaller and smaller pieces. So the plastic that gets into the ocean eventually through you know, the force of UV rays and waves is fragmented. And what you find in the middle of the ocean, and not just in the Pacific Ocean, you know, the, the garbage patch in the Pacific, but really in all the world's oceans, are these you know, uh, zones where the, it, you have like a confetti of plastic diffused through the water. It, it, it's, it's like dust motes. And, um, you know, Which suggests that it's a problem for the, the gills of marine creatures. I don't know about gills, but we know that marine creatures eat it. And the big question is, what does that mean? Because these little bits, it turns out, tend to absorb contaminants that are already in the water, things like PCBs or DDT, which has been outlawed since the early 70s. Um, and it, these little bits sop it up. They concentrate it by thousands of times. And then um, animals eat it. And the big question is, if they are eating this stuff, can it 
get out of the plastic into their systems? That's the, the big unanswered question right now. There are a couple of studies that suggest actually it can get back into animals' tissues, in which case, you know, you sort of have this whole system for transporting our contaminants that have gotten into the sea back up the food chain to us. All right, so is, is it likely we're eating plastic ourselves? Um, it's possible we're eating the chemicals that plastic contains. Yeah. And so how do you, have you changed your life since doing this research? I have. I mean, I'm not a super alarmist person, so, you know, somebody who walked in my house would probably be appalled, say, to see the plastic bottles lined up on the bathtub. But, um, but I am much more careful about plastic. I think a lot harder about the stuff I buy and, and the packaging around it. I really don't buy produce in plastic anymore. Um, I carry my reusable bag everywhere. I don't carry or buy bottled water. I got a seltzer maker, which is you know the revolutionary device in my home. Um, and I'm you know really pretty um, uh, hardcore about recycling and drive my family crazy pulling things out of the garbage can saying this is recyclable. Um, and you know I, it's, it's a question I think of just being aware and sort of seeing plastic, um, which you know was what that experiment I described earlier was about, was sort of seeing that it's all around us. So I used to walk in the park and really be good at just, you know, looking right past plastic trash um, that was in the park. And now, you know, kind of every day I come back carting, you know, bottles and bags and... But it, not all plastic is recyclable, though. Um, you, in, in San Francisco, you can put anything but plastic film and styrofoam in your recycling bin. Um, it won't necessarily all be made into new useful plastic things. A lot of it is shipped to China. Um, that's not true in other communities. And what does China do with it? Well, the bottles they make into fleece and sort of fiber fill for sleeping bags and stuff. Um, some of it they make into, you know, probably not the most useful devices, or they make it into flower pots. Um, they do recycle it. I mean, China has figured out what the United States has not, which is that this is valuable stuff, and it needs to be, the molecules that go into making plastic should be kept in circulation as long as possible. And so what is the rising price of oil uh, doing to the price of plastic? It's going up, but it's funny, in the trade press, they are all, there's, there's been this long-term trend about plastic, uh, the plastic industry, you know, losing market share and a lot of it moving overseas, and these discoveries of natural gas reserves here, um, suddenly there's all this sort of jubilation in the plastic press because most plastic in this country is made from natural gas, and they're all they see you know huge new opportunities to expand um, certain sectors of the plastic industry off of these natural gas finds, which is charming, leading to such practices as fracking and and so forth. You know, breaking apart shale underground with toxic fluids. Exactly, fracking is good news to plastics news. <laughs> <laughs> And then, of course, you have Canada, which is now making plastic money, going into the big tar sands oil business in a huge way. Right, so. right, right, right. The, the other thing, though, the industry is also looking for non-fossil fuels uh, sources for plastic. So there's a big you know, rush to make plastic out of sugarcane. Brazil is doing a lot of stuff around plastic. Plastic from sugarcane? Yeah, making plastic. The um, Coca-Cola had ads, I guess, all over yesterday for their plant bottle, which is made from, it's a polyethylene, just like regular... Um, it's, made, it's the same kind of molecule as the regular plastic bottle, but it's made from sugarcane in part. I've heard of bottles made from corn. Yeah, this is sugarcane, but it's the same idea. The bottles from corn are a totally different kind of plastic. This is identical to uh, PET plastic that 
conventional bottles are made out of. It just uses sugarcane as one of the source ingredients. That's an interesting metaphor for soda pop. <laughs> yeah. Susan Frankel, whose book is called Plastic, a Toxic Love Story, and uh, we're all involved in that relationship, and uh, Moby Duck by Donovan Hone. But you can find uh, links to all of our guests and our, their websites through ours at wcl.org. It uh, has a new look to it. Don't be uh, frightened of it. It's uh, pretty friendly. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sed. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.